Hello and welcome to The Stack. For this week's show, I'll take you to a summer holiday trip in Europe. From a book club in the beautiful Greek island of Hydra to one of our favorite titles covering Spain. And talking about Spain, we also have an interview with a local title from Palma in Mallorca. Enjoy the sun and the magazines. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. The sun is out in London, and that makes me very happy, I have to say. Perhaps that's why this week's show is so sunny. We start in Hydra, where Josh Hickey founded the Hydra Book Club, a bookstore on the island selling all literature from writers inspired by the place. The book club currently has a pop-up in New York and will be in Bodrum in August, and finally opening late in the season in Hydra from the 4th of September. Josh tells me more about the project. I refer to it as three different things. It is almost first and foremost, beyond a bookstore, it is a museum show. So this is an installation in the museum on the island of Hydra in Greece, in which I present a thoroughly researched anthology or collection of all of the literature that has been written by authors linked to this island, Hydra. So what it is also is a bookstore because it is a functioning retail operating bookstore in which I myself am there selling books. So this is a, a new way of approaching both a bookstore and a museum show. And then thirdly, and this is something that I maybe underestimated or didn't anticipate the extent of it, but it is a community center. So this is now on the island, a source of pride from the locals, a gathering point, a place where the writers that are still living there can come and exchange and do readings and, you know, present their, their work alongside, you know, these more historical writers. Tell us about your experience uh, in Hydra. Is, is it a place that you've been going for, for years? Is it kind of a slightly more recent discovery? Tell us a bit more. I have been going there for many years. You're, you're correct. I've been going there for about 12 years. And each year, it would become increasingly an increasingly longer stay, you know. So I was, went the first year one week, the second year two weeks, the third year three weeks, <laughs> and so on. And, you know, previously to doing this project and to sort of, you know, uh, pushing myself into a new field of literary curation, I had a, another job and I was working for, you know, a big luxury company and my, my vacation time was really framed out in August. You know, I live in France uh, for those listening and in France, you know, everybody pretty much takes the month of August off all at the same time. So when I left that role and you know, develop this new role for myself, I was able to stay much longer. So my time became more invested in the island, but then also, you know, at a certain point when you are visiting the same place again and again, you know, the reason that I am going back anyway, and I feel this is, you know, mostly true for people who, who get hooked on a certain space, it's because you make these friends, right? So 
you make friends and then that's your only time every year that you can see these friends who perhaps live on the island or perhaps only visit during you know, the month of August. And so when I became a little, let's say freer in my organization of my time, I could spend more and more time there. And then began the question of how else can I invest in my relationship with this island and in my relationship with my friends there. And so because I come from a culture background, I decided to invest in culture and that's how this project uh, was born. What authors have uh, you know visited uh, Hydra for the purpose of, of of literature, either writing or for inspiration? I presume they're also quite international, not just uh, Greek writers, right? That's correct. And there's, you know, I, I always begin the answer because this is a you know a question that I receive quite often because sometimes you know sometimes even incredulously people say, oh well, how can you do that? There must not be that many authors. And there are, that's what's so incredible about Hydra. And, you know, there, there's a really sort of a vast network of writers and you, you correctly state uh, both international and Greek, and they've also come there to be with one another. So this is another particularity about the scene here where I always say, you know, sometimes people go to an island or the top of a mountain to write to be around no people. Here in Hydra, people are coming to be together. And so that starts in the 1930s with a Greek painter named Nico Gikas, who begins to invite both Greek and foreign artists and writers to his house on Hydra. So this is really the kickoff, if you will, or the genesis of the, the artistic and certainly the literary scene on the island. So this is in the late 1930s. This is Henry Miller. This is... Nobel Prize winning poet, Yorgos Seferis, Greek. This is Lawrence Durrell, it's Patrick Lee Fermer, John Craxton, who was the, uh, the artist and illustrator who was doing the covers for Patrick Lee Fermer's books. This is the whole sort of beginning crew that's coming to Hydra, staying there and writing from there. And then that web of friendship and connection sort of, you know, spreads out. And then other Greek people are coming. Margarita Liberaki, who was also living partially in Paris in the 1950s and 40s and 50s. She was friends with Jean-Paul Sartre. So there's always this mix of Greek and international and with a real global relevance in a way of, of this crew. The late 1950s, that brings you into the period of Leonard Cohen, of the Australian Charmaine Clift, her husband, George Johnston, American beat generation poets like Gregory Corso, Harold Norris, Harold, Alan Anson, Alan Ginsberg, you know, and that brings you into the 1970s and 80s. There was Margarita Carapanu, a very big Greek author as well. Today, there's people like Polly Sampson, there's Deborah Levy, you know, the list, I've given you, you know, one third of the people there. So these are the big names from, you know, this sort of uninterrupted flow of artists and writers working together on the island for nearly 100 years. Wow, that's amazing. And only for the names you told me, that's an impressive lineup already. What yeah. about the physical space? I mean, you, you were telling me it's in Hydra. When is it open? Which period of the year is it open? And and then I want to hear more as well about the traveling book club. So you are actually 
you know, going to other places to promote this, which I find it quite interesting. That's correct. So the Hydra, you know, which is really the core project and home for the project, if you will, is the late season. So that's September and October. It's for two months. I do, you know, just in case anyone's there during August and I'm there, <laughs> I do some appointments. You know, there, there's a way to connect with me and get and books and see things and talk to me. But the real exhibit is from September and October. You know, Hydra has a very interesting cultural programming happening every year. And it runs from, you know, the end of June until the end of October. So I fit into the second half of that cultural season, if you will. And that's a very good time. And yes, it does now travel. So, you know, there's a couple of things here also. The the way that people consume media or consume literature is also, you know, I've made a link between that, that style of literary exposure or consumption and a specific place. And so this is enabling, you know, locals and repeat visitors to delve deeper into their relationship with the island to understand how the scene developed, to, to read these stories, which, you know, some didn't even take place on the island, the text itself, but the authors reading about their lives, their link to the island, it's part of our shared heritage, right? So this, this is the community aspect of it. It really creates this new way of bonding with our neighbors on the island. And then it also enables the visitors because, you know, of which there are, are many, it's a very popular island now, it enables them to really augment their, their experience while they're on the island. If you're reading the Colossus of Marusi, for example, some of the most brilliant passages of which are written about Hydra while you're on Hydra, this just really is a mind expansion and does something you know, almost spiritual to connect you even more deeply to the island. So this style of site-specific curation has gotten me a lot of attention suddenly, and people want it. So I'm talking right now, it's gone to New York. I'm doing one in Bodrum for the month of August in the Machikizi Hotel. And I did four days also in Spetses, the neighboring island, uh, during the classic yacht regatta, and then in Hydra. So this year I'm, I'm taking the Hydra riders, but I sculpt the selection to relate to the place that they're in, okay? So for example, in New York, I did a heavier uh, presentation of the American beat generation poets of Leonard Cohen, even though he was Canadian, he lived in New York. And I also had a lot of Spanish translations and different languages to pertain to a public in New York City, which varies slightly, obviously, to the, that which is on Hydra. What's so special about Hydra to you uh, personally? I've never been, but I mean, you're definitely selling it to me. Yeah, I think my answer to that is like, you haven't been yet. Yet, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think at the end of this conversation, you'll call me back and we'll do a little travel, we'll do a little travel conversation. But yes, Hydra is, is very, let me put it this way. The first thing that got me hooked on Hydra is the fact that there are no cars. And when you eliminate car travel from a place, 
the residents, the visitors are walking. So you see everybody, you know, it's like, if you take a subway in the city, you know, I live in Paris, I enjoy taking the subway, you know, because you're, you're in there with all of these people, right? So you're, you're, you feel much more connected to, to different people from all different kinds of people. And this is really quite special that proximity is what makes a deep connection for you and, and helps you understand the diversity and sort of the fascinating quality of where it is that we live. And in Hydra, the fact that there are no cars, there are no mopeds, there are no bicycles, the entire population is on foot. So when you're on foot, you are walking around, you're on the port, then you are squeezed into these small uh, streets that go into the town, that go up the stairs, up the mountain, and you're seeing people, you're, you're passing by them, you're brushing shoulders with them, and inevitably you're seeing the same people again and again, right? So this very particular situation has a social result, which is that people make friends in a very different way. And this is really the most special element of Hydra. And I've known people who have arrived on Hydra alone and they make friends and they stay much, much past their initial departure date because they're, you're just sort of automatically absorbed into a very warm, generous, supportive community. And Josh, just uh, finally, uh, I know this might be a little bit of a hard question, but if you would recommend to our listeners here on the stack one of your, one of the books that you that you stock, that would be a good summer read. Could you recommend one or two, even if you okay. want? Uh, listen, you know, I mean, you know, you you said it yourself. It's a hard question. Of course, <laughs> I could recommend like twenty five right now, but there is one that is very special to me. And I think just special in general, because it's, it's written by a woman. Her name is Brenda Chamberlain. She's a Welsh writer. And she lived in a very small island off the coast of Wales. She was a bit of a loner. And then she has a Greek lover. So she and her Greek lover come to Hydra. And while walking across the port, the Greek lover trips over an English tourist's dog an Airedale to be specific. And this develops into a fist fight. And the Greek lover kills the English tourist on the port. I thought it was the dog. And, so, and this is where the story begins. And it's a, you know, it's a nonfiction, it's a journal, the sort of the sub, it's called A Rope of Vines. Sorry, I, I, I omitted the title. A Rope of Vines by Brenda Chamberlain. And the subtitle is A Journal from a Greek Island. So this is her journal entries during the time that she remains on Hydra while her Greek lover is sent to Athens to await trial for manslaughter. And she really eloquently paints not only a beautiful poetic portrait of daily life on an island, but she goes up and stays in a monastery with the nuns. So she's speaking about that. She's highlighting a bit also a bit of the tensions that arise from this summer energy of heat mixed with you know foreign artists and locals and things like that she has a very sharp point of view and it's also peppered or accessorized with 
these very intriguing line drawings that she's done. So I think that, and I hope my enthusiasm for this title comes out and I speak about it, but it's such a crazy story. And it's both a, like a, a, a fantastically crazy story and a very, very sharp view of a, a reality, which is Hydra. Thank you very much, Josh. And for those interested, do check it out, their Instagram page, Hydra Book Club. From Greece to Spain, where Lee Schaefer's travel title Lodestar's Anthology is taking us, the new issue looks at Spain from its mountainous regions to its fantastic gastronomy. It was great catching up with Liz here at Midori House. Tell us about the cover. I like to start with the cover. You know, it's a very mountainous region of Spain. Where are you so taking So that us? was taken by photographer Dan Cook, and I'm going to murder pronunciations, but it's in Picos de Europa in Asturias. And I loved that cover photo because it just did not strike me in any way, shape or form as being Spain. You have the Spain mm. of the imagination and making this magazine in Australia and plotting it during a lockdown. Spain seemed very far away. So it was very traditional images of oranges and flamenco that I had. And when Dan sent this photo through, it was immediately the cover. And before we talk a little bit more about this issue, I mean, let's talk about travel in general. I mean, not just the chaos that we're seeing in the airports around the world, but the need for travel is there. I mean, I don't know why people are acting surprised. I mean, of course, people want to travel more and more, right? Are you happy to see that the travel is back, right? I mean, there's no denial. It's back in such a strange way. It's mm. almost like the past two years didn't happen. We've mm. got back into that hunger and that need to be on the road. And I think it is when you're in a different city or you're hiking or you're somewhere out of the ordinary, that's when the world feels most normal again because you are back to how things once were. Absolutely. And, well, going back here to Spain, I think it's a fascinating country. What has been your experience, actually, in Spain? I feel bad because I just know, like, the big cities. I know Barcelona, Madrid, but I would love to explore more. And I think that's what your issue, you know, uh, talks about, not just about the main cities. Well, that's exactly how I was. I'd spent time in a few of the main cities over the years, but that was the extent of my knowledge of Spain. And it was interesting. I was still in Australia when we were commissioning this, and Australia was in lockdown at the time. So... This was the first issue that I didn't do a huge amount of travel for. I trusted my contributors. I trusted their pitches. We worked with a lot of people based in the country. So as these stories were coming in, I was learning more about Spain. And every issue, the theme and the mood kind of takes me by surprise. And I wasn't expecting Spain to A, be so nature-centric, but B, be so interconnected. The history is so layered and complex and interwoven. And the entire thing took me by surprise. It's quite nice traveling the way I think some of the Lodestar's readers might have, which is just learning story by story. You know, I agree. I remember I forgot which country it was because suddenly it was all about food, you know, in the, in the country. Maybe maybe it was the Mexico issue. I'm not, I mean, uh, food's there and all. I really like eating, so... Yeah, so, it was, I mean, it's always a, a big theme, right? Let, let's be honest here. But I, I love as well that you're going, that Spain people perhaps associate with the beach, but there's amazing mountainous regions and kind of the countryside of Spain is stunning as well. Cheese aged in caves mm. and rivers to canoe down. It's There's so, so much there. And I feel like the tiny bit of travel I got to do right at the end was really lovely because, A, I got to learn a little bit and have a sense of what the place was about before I got there through the contributor stories. But it just, you wanted to go and explore things a little bit different. Yes, we popped into Barcelona, but an hour and a half away is pretty right, the wine region that nobody really knows about. And it's exciting about Spain. We've been having a lot of kind of Spanish magazines here on the stack as well. It's, it feels to me that it's a very creative uh, country as well. 
in terms of kind of art, uh, publishing, and tourism as well, if oh, I may I'd, say. I'd move to Barcelona in a heartbeat. See, I mean, you, you're, you're a bit suspicious because every country you go, I mean, there's always something beautiful uh, to say. And tell us, I have Australia here. That was the one before Spain, right? That was kind of a, a revisit of, of one of the first editions that you did? That was, yes. The original Australia mm. was our issue three back in 2015, mm. I think. We were very much a baby magazine then, so I don't think I salvaged a huge amount from that first issue. Most of it was... um my embarrassing early work which no longer exists thank you but um no it was really wonderful to do Australia I'd gone back there to escape COVID for a winter ended up staying for a year and a half so it was a really nice way to reconnect with the place that I should have known better from day dot but I really got to find out a lot more through making the magazine again and where are you based these days is it back to London oh, it's, a complicated, it's question. a complicated question <laughs> I'm figuring that one out I think a lot of us are in that situation where we've really assessed what's important to us. Is it family? Is it a place where there is more creativity? Is it a place that's connected? So I'm taking a little bit of time to figure it out. But London's London's pretty glorious, especially when, you know, the sky is blue and the weather's warm. I know about this division, family, work or, you know, whatever you feel bad at. And next year I'm going to Australia. That's that's for sure. And I will be asking questions to you. Oh, I have I have some answers. It is a beautiful country and it is very big and very diverse but again there's a lot of through lines in terms of culture beauty respect for land and a lot of food so if you want to see Australia a bit differently got the magazine for you absolutely uh, and about the world of Lodestar's anthology how's it going uh, business-wise is this a lot of subscriptions or are you trying to sell in different places that are just not newsstands tell us a bit more about how how has it been for you in the last year um, during the pandemic, we really grew a lot of people who were finding us online and through subscriptions and online sales, which was really lovely because when we were feeling very disconnected and living in a city that we hadn't lived in for 10 years, to sort of see where the magazine was going, who was gifting it, the reason it was being given was a reminder of why we make magazines and you, you make them so people read them. You make them so that you write something that resonates. Someone sees a picture that makes them want to delve deeper and travel further. So that was really lovely to have that connection through people online but it's also really fun to go out again and see them in stores and to have you know some stockists who have multiple issues and you can sort of see that they have this life beyond you just sending them to print absolutely uh well Liz, muchas gracias uh thank you so much for coming and of course spanish issues out now this week so i recommend everyone to go and buy it as well thank you thank you Liz. as always the new issue of load stars anthology is out now We stay in Spain, more specifically Palma. Hailing from the salt-swept shores of scenic Mallorca, in Palma is a love letter to its city's fair, with a selection of stories from across the island to peruse. Flawless photography and attention to sustainability are all hallmarks of In Palma. Emily Wade speaks to Ivan Terrassa, In Palma's editor and founder, to find out a little more about the magazine and the people that make it. I studied broadcasting journalism and political science in Miami at the United States. And when I came back, it was a big difference to be in Miami than to be in Mallorca. But in Mallorca, I have all, all my family and I was born here. But I didn't want to work in a newspaper or in a radio station here because in Miami, I worked at the CBS and at the Discovery Channel. So for me, uh, it was like... Mm, not very much uh, stimulating to work in a local newspaper. So I didn't know what to do. 
And one day in my room at my parents' house, I was just looking and I just saw a mountain of maga of old magazines from my father. And suddenly it came this thing to say, wow, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do my own magazine. And it was 20 years ago, this idea. So from that day, I started to work. And well, that's the beginning of Impalma. And now we are going to make 20 years in next year. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's great to know a bit more about your background. I didn't realize that it'd been going for such a long time. I mean, what would you say was the ethos of the magazine and kind of what, what does Impalma cover kind of issue to issue? Well, the, the ethos, our mission, that is something that we really we really like to, to say is, is this. No? Impalma is a magazine made in Mallorca from the heart with the desire to reach the heart of its readers through simple stories human people and beautiful places, all of which are worth telling. All the team of Impalma and myself, were people, very rural people from Mallorca, very simple people, very... We just love what we do. And we love the stories and the people that we interview. The main thing is to interview people and to tell stories always with a constructive and positive background, but not a silly or empty background. Deep people and deep stories, but with uh, with something that, that the reader, our readers can can maybe learn or can maybe apply to their lives to say, for example, oh look, this person was an advocate and suddenly he left everything and he went to a, an old house in the countryside to make ceramics. Oh, maybe I can do this also. Mm. You see, this is the... Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, um, yeah, it sounds, it sounds so interesting. And would you say there's kind of themes running throughout each issue, kind of, you know, issue to issue, would you say there was a theme or? It's very simple. We, every three months, the, the magazine, we launch four issues a year, uh, spring, summer, autumn, and winter. I mean, today we are launching our summer issue. So on Monday, we'll see all the team, but all the team, I mean, writers, editors, secretaries, designers, photographers, and we sit down and, and we say, okay, what can we do the next issue? And we stay there two hours talking and looking and it's a very easy way of doing things. Very, very easy way. We never, never interview politicians. Never. Mm. We never make any kind of report about parties, about parties of people with a, with a cup of wine drinking. Mm. Yeah. The two things that we never do, politicians and social life, no? Mm. Sounds like an interesting, very collaborative process as well when you get the whole team together. And why is uh, Palmer so rich with stories? Would you say it's the people or the places that make the city what it is today? I, I think Palma, it conserves the, the mystery of centuries ago. Palma, it's a very, it's a very mysterious city that has always something to, to discover, but not in a touristic way. The essence of the city is the same one 1,000 years ago when 
the Christians came to the year 1239, they conquered the island from the Muslims. And the, the essence is the same, it's, it's the same. For me, something that is incredible from Palma, and I have traveled to a lot of countries and cities, is the, the, the play of light, shadows, and silence. I'm sure it's, it's difficult to, to appreciate it if you, if you go just in a touristic uh, trip, walking, but to discover Palma, you have to see, but to really see, sit down and see. And the people, it's a pity that every time there is less people from before. Now for me, it's, I mean, in the good way, it's more multicultural city, but in the not so good way, it's losing um, old shops, old people, mm. you see. Yeah, yeah, I completely get that. I think um, I love the way that you talk about Palmer. It's um, it's, it's really beautiful. Um, what would you say was your uh, top three culture picks for things to do in Palmer, whether kind of it was in the city or a bit kind of further out? What would you say were your top three? First of all, with no doubt, is to walk uh, through the, the old neighbourhoods, the very old neighbourhoods, because there uh, you can find the... Old shops, like from 300, 400 years ago. And for me, there is nothing more cultural than to find spots of how life was 300 or 400 years ago. But they, these are places very, very, in very concrete places. You have to, to look for them really good. And second one for me will be to sit down in a bench of the Paseo del Borne, that is the, the heart of the city, Paseo del Borne. And if you sit in one of that 200-year-old benches, you can really observe the essence of Palma just there. I mean, look, the buildings, the trees, mm. the people walking, and there you have the perfect spot. That's um that's really really helpful. I'll definitely <laughs> definitely give those uh give those picks a go. Um, how does um distribution and advertising work in Palma and wider Mallorca? Do you find that your readership is enough to sustain the magazine and the brand? Well, we now, as, as I was saying, we're going to make twenty years in the market, and we are in a very strong position. Well, there are other magazines, of course, but I think we are a pretty good reference from, from Palma and from Mallorca. So every time we have more subscribers, more readers, more advertising. So we are very happy in this way. And yes, we can. I mean, our editorial, our publishing house, we also make books and magazines, corporate magazines from other from other people, but in Palma it's our main ship. So we are very, very happy with how things are going with it. That's great. That's so interesting. Have you got plans to expand further afield then? Like we'd, we'd love to see in Palma in London at some point. Well, it, it's very interesting that you say that because now there is a very big distribution company in Germany that is called Thalia and they, they want to start to, to work with us in order to, to have their books, our magazines there, in their shops all over Germany. And, and we also would like to go 
in some because we have a lot of subscribers all around all over the world from australia to united states and of course great britain and germany and sweden and france and maybe in in london or maybe in in sweden we would like to maybe be in maybe i don't know five six bookstores because in palma it's a very book style magazine mm. but we'll see Thank you, Ivan and Emily. And talking about summer, this week Monaco launched Monaco Mediterraneo, our Berliner format paper that smells and feels like the hottest season. Here is Monaco's editor, Josh Fanat, with a taster. As the temperature soars in Europe, many are braced for that seasonal sense of giddiness, frivolity and glee that grips global newsrooms in high summer. It's dubbed silly season in the Anglosphere and, pleasingly, cucumber time elsewhere. The condition, pandemic in proportions, tends to coincide with the moment seasoned news editors book their holidays and leave less tested hands on the editorial rudder. It's also when politicians, CEOs and the folks often responsible for driving the news cycle find themselves splashing off yachts in swimming pools or sunlit coves, rather than on the front pages of broadsheets or the tickers of the cable news shows. The summer slump, my friends, is coming. Here at Monocle, though, we've always believed in the power of great reporting to entertain, of course, but it should also inform, inspire and implore, too. It should offer solutions, benchmarks and action. That's why we've relaunched our bold and beautiful Berliner format newspaper, Monocle Mediterraneo, for the summer, and it's on newsstands from today. Within its pages, we've scoped out the businesses, brands and desirable destinations to see. We beat a path to the new Sunbelt cities, tempting new residents from Girona to Valletta and Palermo, and called in on Cairo to survey a saline solution keeping cities cool using seawater. Plus, how the tensions between Greece and Turkey are simmering on the island of Samos. We've also profiled the cash cows and, yes, sheep and goats behind the regional cheeses that make a Mediterranean break, from Manchego to salty Beiruti shanklish and soft, rich brioku from Corsica. All before some sunny reading recommendations, hotspots and must-see museums, plus a road trip around Chilento to understand a European brand of living a good, long and lovely life, with plenty of sun, wine and family too. So whether your plans follow the Mistral, Levant or Sirocco this summer, finding something cheery to read will be a breeze. And you'd be silly to miss it. For Monocle, I'm Josh Fennett. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonocle.com. And remember... We're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. And don't forget to subscribe to The Stack on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and at monocle.com. You can also buy and subscribe to Monocle magazine on our website, including the Monocle Mediterranean newspaper, which is beautiful. And we're going to continue with the summary vibe here. We have a song for you. It's Primero with Oh Que Calor. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Okay, okay. Hello. 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 Hello.